Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome to a special bonus edition of Space Boffins. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson, and we're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. And this special edition features, for the first time, the full final interview that I did with Apollo 17 commander Gene Cernan. And you're pretty sure that this was the last broadcast interview he ever did, aren't you? Pretty sure, yeah. yeah. He His health deteriorated pretty quickly after, after this interview. That's, I suppose, not really the point, though. The point is... I think he's quite revealing. I think he's quite different. And, in this and we've played we've interviews. played some of these parts of this interview before, but never in its entirety. Okay, Gordon, we're out of eleven thousand at nine. Okay, stand by for pitch over. Oh, are we coming in? Oh, baby, I'll give it to you. On December the eleventh, nineteen seventy-two, Apollo seventeen landed on the moon. Pitch over. There it is. Proceeded. And there it is, Houston, there's Camelot. Wow. Last target. I see it. We got them all. 42 degrees, 37 degrees, to 5,500. That's Gene Cernan and Harrison Smith making their final approach to the Taurus Litro Valley in Challenger. Here are just a few facts about that mission. They'd spend 75 hours on the moon, 22 hours outside, drive 22 miles and bring back a staggering 111 kilograms of rock. It was Cernan's third and final mission, which I think makes him one of the the greatest astronauts of all time. Yeah, and I think um, once, once people hear this interview in full... I know many astronauts are, you know, admirable human beings, but he's he's very much old school, and it is rather wonderful to hear. And just remind us again how how you got this interview. Yeah, it probably needs a little bit of setup, and I'll, I'll go through some of the things we talked about as well in a sec. But this was shortly after his film came out, Last Man on the Moon movie. And in this interview, he'll mention Mark Craig, Mark Stewart and Gareth Dodds. They were producers and directors of the film. And didn't we have Gareth on the podcast we at one point? We did have yeah. Gareth on the podcast at yeah. one point. And we also... So I did an interview with Gene Cernan almost immediately after the film came out. And this interview was a little later than that, maybe a couple of years on or at least a year on from that interview. And it's very different. Listening back to both interviews, this is a very different interview. In what way? He's much more, I think, candid, more relaxed. Um, I felt, and, and afterwards they said... There were things in this interview that he'd never said before, never said to them. And they'd done a huge number of interviews with us. So I, I, I think it's really annoyed more, them. <laughs> more contemplative, more contemplative. Is that well, the word? One of those pronunciations. One of those words. Anyway, yeah, either yeah, of those yeah. words will do. Um, let me set it up then. So it was, it was summer 2016 at Space Fest in Tucson. Uh, 
<laughs> it was a slightly extraordinary setting for an interview as well, because previous interviews, I'd done interviews with Gene Cernan before over the years. Uh, the first one I did was after his book came out. Um, so I guess that was late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. Uh, and that was when he was working in private business. So it was in his office. It was like a CEO's office. And it was quite formal. Yeah. He didn't know me. It was yeah. very professional. Got some very good stuff out of it. But it was a very professional sort of situation. Had a lovely conversation then just after the, the movie came out. So I'm guessing that's maybe 2015, something like 2014 or 2015. And that was more unprofessional. It? <laughs> it was very unprofessional. Actually, I, one of my claims to fame, I showed Gene Cernan how to use his iPhone. <laughs> How to get rid of the annoying little red dots on the corner of things. Oh, great. Well done. So that's my, that was my big claim to fame. Yeah. Training an Apollo astronaut. And so this used. one that so we're this about one, to hear. Yeah. So this was at Space Fest, summer 2016. Recorded about 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. We were both jet lagged. It was in Gene Cernan's hotel room. So you can hear the air conditioning in the background. And he was in his dressing gown. Wow, that's an image. <laughs> so that is the the setup uh, for the interview. Uh, uh, hold on, what were you wearing, Rich? I'm I just was, wondering whether fully, you've got something to tell me. I was fully clothed, full business. Okay. you know, well, you full know. business t-shirt and denim. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, my my standard journo look. Um, uh, you know, as always with these sort of interviews, particularly with Apollo astronauts, uh, sometimes you can hear I struggle to get a word in. Um, he answers his own questions. Unusual. He answers <laughs> his own questions. Um, I think it's very revealing. Um, his missions then, um, Gemini 9, Apollo 10 he talks about. So, uh, I mean, this I thought that what he was talking about Apollo 10, really interesting. And then Apollo 17. And I think the other thing I need to, to add to this, it was before NASA had announced and started work on Artemis and before the Dragon flight. So Gene Cernan had visited Cape Canaveral and just seen these derelict launch towers that were the Apollo launch towers. And now one of them is launching Dragon and one of them is about to launch Artemis. So it's very different than when we did this interview. So shall we hear it? Yeah. I'm Gene Cernan, former naval aviator, former uh, NASA astronaut, Jimmy and Apollo. So I find myself here after uh, 82 years, which is unbelievable to me, but I'm here <laughs> with a few memories that maybe we can talk about. I'd like to start by talking actually about Gemini 9, your okay. your first mission. And you weren't the, orig- the prime crew to start with. You were actually the, the backup crew. Let me give you a little background. Mm. Uh, I was the group, I was the third group of 14 that were chosen. And I like to say this because... Uh, I didn't even apply for the program because I didn't meet all NASA's qualifications. I hadn't gone to test pilot school, and yet, for some reason, I still don't know, it's, it's your why me question. I ended up being selected. And out of the 14, I then was selected to be the fifth of the 14 to fly, which, you know, was, was a real challenge to me. As it turned out, I was a backup crew for Charlie Bassett and Elliot C., and they were the second crew to fly in Gemini. They killed themselves in an airplane crash, terrible airplane crash, in St. Louis. So Tom Stafford and I immediately became the prime crew. Now I'm the second guy to fly in the out of 14. You know, being on a backup crew is a little comforting. 
And then one day you wake up, and it's you. You're in a prime crew. It's for real. You're really going. And it's a whole different psychological world. I mean, the backup crew, you're sitting back to, well, we'll get these guys ready to fly, and I'll be ready to fly. And when after they fly, then my chance will come. All of a sudden, I'm a month or two away from going into space. That was a revelation to me. Give me a sense of how important the Gemini program was, because it achieved so much in such a short amount of time. It it, it was uh, extremely important, because uh, if you go back in history, you'll find out that uh, JFK, the president, within three weeks after Alan Shepard flew, Alan Shepard went up, came down. He didn't even get in orbit. 22 minutes, up and down. Within three weeks, John Glenn had not yet flown in orbit. The President of the United States says, okay, folks, I guess we're ready to go to the moon. We didn't know beans about going to the moon. We had a whole reservoir of things we had to learn. That's where Gemini came in. So the Gemini program was inserted between the end of Mercury and, and, and what became the first flight of Apollo. We needed to learn how to rendezvous. We learned, needed to learn how to spend long durations. Uh, we had a 14-day Gemini mission. Uh, we needed to learn how to get out of spacecraft and confront the elements of not just zero gravity, but the vacuum of space. All the things that we were going to have to confront and learn how to do an Apollo to walk on the moon, we hadn't even touched. And so Gemini was the bridge and a very important bridge that we had to cross successfully to get to Apollo. Did we have some failures in Gemini? Yes. Do you learn from your failures? Hopefully you do. And I think, and, and effectively, we did because we, we had some problems that we had to overcome in Gemini before we could feel comfortable about moving forward into Apollo. What was it like as a spacecraft? It's often called the, the pilot's spacecraft. It's very much the cockpit. It's very much like an aircraft cockpit with the instrumentation, the way it's laid out. Well, yes and no. We've got a lot of instrumentation. The shape of the spacecraft is a little different because of aerodynamic requirements. Much, much, much smaller. Of course, you don't have rudder pedals. You've got all the controls in one, in one hand, quite frankly. It's much smaller, more difficult to move around in. And we had to contend with the fact that we might have to be in a have our we're in a pressure suit. If you lose pressure in a spacecraft, you have to inflate your suit, which makes it even more difficult to move around. And and I walked in space on my flight, and so we went through that. And that was my spacewalk from hell. And when you're trying to get in and out of a, a spacecraft as small as a Gemini, it was small. Uh, in a, in a pressure, pressurized suit, it's almost impossible. Why was it small? We did not have the, the weight capability in the booster that the Soviets had at that point in time. They, they could put the grand piano in space. We were really weight limited. Our spacecraft were very small, and, and every pound counted. And so we were confined to living in those kind of restricted conditions, which was very difficult. But once you you make it difficult, things become easier. Does that make sense? With the let's go. We'll come on to your spacewalk from hell in a moment. the The launch 
went well. But then your first task was to dock. When you were approaching that um, mm. docking adapter and you saw that all wasn't well, I mean, what went through your mind? Describe the scene, if you can. The, uh, the launch, we were on a basically an intercontinental ballistic missile converted to what they call the Gemini launch vehicle, uh, a lot smaller than a big old Saturn V, by the way. And the launch did go well, with, with one exception. I think it was our certainly our second, maybe our third try. And the first time, we had a computer glitch, so we delayed the flight a couple days. The second time, the Agena rocket that we were supposed to rendezvous with that had a docking adapter on on an Atlas missile went up and came, came back down in the ocean. So... Your launcher is fine, but then the Agena that you're yeah, meant to dock with. As I recall, the first attempt was a computer glitch. I think the second attempt, the Agena, uh, which was our target vehicle, on the Atlas crashed back into the ocean. So all of a sudden, well, there was no target vehicle. So they came up with this docking adapter, which was not an Agena rocket, but it did have the ability to dock with it, and it was stabilized. It was the nose of a I think it was the nose of another Gemini spacecraft. That was our third attempt. And so when that time came around, they got an indication on the ground that this shroud did not come off. And they decided, let's go anyway. It's the third attempt we went. We went up there, and sure enough, there was a shroud hanging sideways, and Tom Stafford nicknamed it the angry alligator, and it did look, but the jaws were open. And there was a lot of discussion on on whether and it was held on by a band on whether I should get out of spacecraft, spacewalk, try and cut that band off. And uh, some people said we ought to try it so that we could dock. Other people said it'd be damn near suicide because as soon as you cut the band, that thing's going to snap, and where's it going to go? It's probably going to hit me somewhere. Decision was made not to do it, which was probably a good decision. And so we just rendezvoused on and never docked. But rendezvous on that vehicle. We got all our rendezvous in. We rendezvoused at night. We rendezvoused from a top and a bottom. We did everything we needed to do to prove that we could rendezvous, which we were going to have to do in Apollo. I mean, if we had to go down and save a guy, we had to come down from the top. A normal rendezvous, he might come up from the bottom. And we proved all the rendezvous, and they all worked. And then the last day, it was my spacewalk, which... Uh, was a whole another interesting deal. I, uh, you know, as smart as we were as engineers, we're in zero gravity. I had no tethers to hold me down. I had none of these fancy shoes to hold me in one place. I was standing on a handlebar in zero gravity. <laughs> you don't stand in zero gravity. So I had to basically assemble this. I called it a Buck Rogers backpack. I was going to fly around out there on a 125-foot tether. Uh, that was part of the experiment, part of what we wanted to do. I had to basically turn the fuel valves on, the oxygen valves on. Every time I turn a valve in zero gravity, it turned me. So here I am turning a valve, and then I'm floating back out there and trying to hold on with one hand. I had to take my feet and put one under the handlebar and one on top just to hold myself in a position. It was very difficult. I ended up overpowering the environmental control system in the spacesuit. It was only cooled by oxygen. Humidity went up. It fogged up. I couldn't see. 
And then I ripped a little bit of my back suit, by the way, where I was, my one, my back was to the sun. I could feel the burning sun come through the thermal layers. It was an interesting spacewalk. That device, now what was it called? The Astronaut Maneuvering Unit. Yeah. You, had to, you had to wear sort of armoured armored trousers. Uh, armored... There's another thing. <laughs> I wore chrome steel woven pants. Should have, known, should have caught that one right away. Why the hell? Well, because this particular rocket pack had live, hot rocket hydrogen peroxide, little rockets in it, which I was going to use to maneuver myself around. You fire a rocket, boom, there goes the fire. And <laughs> someone figured, well, we can't let them catch on fire. We may, Maybe we'll make steel pants. So that, you know, there's so many things we didn't catch. And I probably should have caught most of them. Those pants were to protect me from the actual rocket engine. Now, the other the problem, you got thermal layers on, you got pressure layers on. Now you put a layer of woven steel on your pants. And the spacecraft was so small, it was hard to get in anyway. And now you got steel pants that you got to, on your legs, that you got to fold your legs under and get them under the instrument panel. Too difficult to describe right now, but almost impossible. And now you got a double layer, including steel. You know, there's so many things we missed on Gemini 9 that we could have thought of ahead of time that could have made that EVA very successful. Now, the other side of that coin is the more successful you are, the more complacent you get. And so I always looked at my EVA as a failure. I let the guys down. In retrospect, over time, we probably learned more with the problems I had than we would have had had everything gone extremely successful. And we went back and picked up on Gemini 12. We went back to what I call a monkey board and had tethers and score holes and round pins. And that kind of, we found out if we anchored our body, we could do anything. And later on in Cheryl Joe Allen, who was about five foot, six or seven, probably weighed 150 pounds, was able to pick up a satellite because his body was anchored. In zero gravity, it weighs nothing. And so, you know, Gemini was an extremely important bridge to the future to Apollo. Without what we learned in Gemini, we probably would have had some major problems in Apollo. Just go back slightly to, so the EVA was called off on Gemini. No, EVA what's, was what, called off. Can you just give me a sense of what state you were in then and your struggle back into the, into the cockpit? I was, when, when Tom, I was all fogged up. I had worked my way back to the AMU back there, and I had it, actually, I had the AMU ready to deploy. All the valves were turned on, I got them on, I got, I got unstrapped, I, I took my umbilical from the spacecraft, my life-giving umbilical oxygen, and unhooked it, and I was now on oxygen and communications from the AMU. I was a satellite, I, I, and, and I was ready to go. All Tom had to do was press a button, boom, I'm out there. But I was all fogged up. I couldn't see, and it was nighttime over Australia. You know, and the communications was not good. And so Tom just called it off. I was extremely disappointed. But here again, it was probably the right thing to do. He called it off, and we terminated the EVI, and then I, I went and got back on the umbilical and, you know, eventually back in the spacecraft, which itself was a major, major problem. And looking at what I had yet to do, if I had flown the AMU, 
you know, getting in it was one thing. Now, when the time comes to get out of it, our plan was for me to hold on to a docking bar at the front of the spacecraft with one hand and with the other hand unbuckle these quick disconnect fasteners on my suit to put the umbilical back on. Try taking a Coke bottle with one hand and opening it, twisting it. It ain't going to work. And that's what, that's what I would have been. It, it, it just wasn't going to work. I'm holding with one hand trying to do everything else with the other. I had no way to hold on to both ends of all those, all those buckles. And, and I, I, I really believe in retrospect. I never would have gotten doffed. We call it doffed. I don't think I would have successfully gotten out of that thing so that I could, you know, get back in a spacecraft. And, and I've always wondered about it. We'll never know. But we, it was a terrible plan. What would have happened? I mean, what was the plan if there must have been a plan if a spacewalking astronaut couldn't get back into the capsule? Yeah. Yeah, there was, but uh, we didn't talk about it much. Tom had, would have had no choice. If I could not have gotten in, he would have had to come home without me. He would have had to disconnect the bilical, and I'd still be floating up there somewhere. It, it sounds terrible, but you know, Suppose that we couldn't get guys off the surface of the moon. There was no other way. There's no rescue ship. We had to accept the fact that there was some risk we went way out of our way to avoid. But those things could happen. We laugh about it now. Uh, I laugh about it with Tom Stafford because he had a discussion with Deke before we left. And Deke said, you know, it's pretty dangerous. If you can't get Gene back in... You don't have any choice. Well, I knew that too, but we didn't. There's certain things you don't talk about. I mean, though at the you, time... You, it, say, you look at, at, at 79, you can look at it as a failure, or you can look at it, at it as a success because it was a failure. I'd like to look at it in a latter manner. It was a success because we did fail. We found a lot of problems early enough where we could solve them before they really gave us a problem on the way to the moon. And, and so in that respect, you know, I've, I've overcome the fact that I let my, my buddies down and that I didn't get the job done that I went to do because in retrospect, fate plays funny tricks. In retrospect, we, we did succeed on Gemini 9. And did NASA accept that? I mean, were the lessons learned across the whole agency? Because, I mean, it's very much a team, isn't it? It's, it's you in space, it's mission control on the ground, and that you've got this whole NASA bureaucracy around that. Well, you know, the other thing about it, when I was up there, my heart rate was going 170 beats a minute back there. And, and the ground, the, the doctors had never seen this. I mean, they were going, they were going bonkers down there. They got an astronaut going around the world with a at 170 beats a minute, they didn't know what to do. They knew I was in trouble. Even even Mission Control, Gene Kranz and others couldn't help me. I mean, it was me. Either I was going to get out of this, or and nobody could help me. Nobody could stop anything. And, and I'm the kind of guy that gets pretty determined. I've always said, uh, I didn't go to the moon not to come home. I didn't get out of that Germany spacecraft not to get back in, as hard as I knew it would be. And we practiced. 
but you can't really practice in zero gravity very well because you don't have any zero gravity available to you down here. And and you, it's always going to be harder than you think it is. And you got to be prepared for that. But there wasn't hell or high water that was going to keep me from, from not getting... I mean, I was bent like a pretzel. I mean, I had, you know, orthopedically, I had every bone of my body bent one way or another, and it hurt. It hurt until Tom finally pressurized the spacecraft, and then my suit went down, and I could take a breath, and he did the unthinkable. You know, you don't spread water around in a spacecraft. And he t- and I was so solid red, he said I looked like a turnip when I got my helmet off, and he took the water gun, and he just squirted me with it. You, that's, that's a real taboo. You don't do that. Water gets behind the instrument panel, shorts up mount, you're in trouble. But it was that kind of thing, and uh, between the two of us, you know, we got home, and here we are. And after your mission, those lessons were learned before the Apollo astronauts, and, and you were, of course, one of those, did this for real on the moon. Yeah, and, you know, every flight was that way. Every flight we learned a little something, whether it was a piece of hardware, whether it was a fuel cell. I go back to Apollo 10. The mission was going great. Tom and I had probably rehearsed uh, this little episode where we were simulating a staging uh, in flight like we would have on a surface to try and, and prepare for Apollo 11, do everything we could. And, and as many times as we practiced what we were doing, human error always can come in. I was operating an abort by guidance computer we were going to practice with, flip a switch over here on the left. Tom knew which switch had to be changed. He hand takes it and flips it over the other direction. And so now and there's a spacecraft out where on a primary guidance. I had put it on the abort guidance for this particular maneuver. And, and the spacecraft, you know, spun out of control when we tried to stage. And we didn't know it at the time. I, I saw the lunar horizon go by in different directions eight times in 15 seconds. Is that scary? Yeah, if you got time to be scared, but I, I didn't have time to be scared. I'm the guy who made Apollo 10 uh, uh but for a mature audience only when I said, golly, she was what the heck happened. And Tom finally was able to take over manually, and, and God bless his soul. He, he literally saved my life because they told us afterwards, had we gone around once or twice more, two things would have happened. We would have gone into what they called gimbal lock, where all our navigation equipment froze up. And, and you're really in trouble then. Or we would have taken enough energy out of our orbit, that there would have been no choice, but we would have slowly drifted back down to the surface. But Tom was able to handle it, and like I say, he saved my life. So we found out, you know, we didn't have a hardware problem, we had a people problem. And and we found out, yeah, we are vulnerable, no matter how good we thought we were, no matter how many times we rehearsed it, you can screw up if you're not careful. So you you got to be careful you don't get too overconfident with what, oh, I've done that, boom, boom, and then you're in trouble. Are you pleased with the reaction to Last Man on the Moon? I mean, you know, everyone, whether it's space fans or a more general audience, whether it's a, a film magazine or a review program, they're all, I mean, they're all favourable reviews. 
I'm overwhelmed. Going back a few years, I didn't even want to do this because I couldn't, I never fully appreciated what uh, Mark Craig and Mark Stewart and Gareth were trying to do. They had something in mind. I'd never done this before. Uh, they had something in mind that I didn't, I didn't understand. I really never knew where it was going to go. And I, I just couldn't appreciate why people would be interested in a movie, quote, about me. I found out later it really wasn't about me. It was about the story of a young kid with a dream. Could have been from any town, USA. I just got back from Australia. It could have been any town in Australia. A young kid with a dream who was determined, who was determined to do something that at that point in his life was unreachable, unreachable. And then it was, from, in my case, it was fly airplanes off aircraft carriers, a product of World War II. And I watched those young men and young women do, young men mostly, you know, make airplanes do the impossible. And that's what I want to do. And I was absolutely determined somewhere, I don't know how I got that way, that that's what I was going to do no matter what. And so when a story became evident to me, and I was convinced that this is something young kids 10 or 20 years down the line have to see that these guys who went to the moon didn't come out of the blue sky in silver capes. You know, they put on their pants one leg at a time. They had a family. They had kids. They made mistakes. And they were just like everybody else. That there was a message I was almost responsible to leave with these kids. If I can do it, why can't they? And, and if I can get them to try, then maybe they'll realize how good they can be. If young kids don't try, if the peer pressure is so great that they're going to back off, now oh, I can't do that. They're never going to get anything done. So, yeah, I'm overwhelmed, quite frankly, and now I'm at a place. We took over the, you know, it, it was it was great here at, here in the U.S. People loved it. I kept asking people, why? What do you like about it? We went to the U.K., and we took over just recently the whole continent, the whole country of Australia. The people there, we went to about six or eight cities, and the people there were bananas. I don't know whether they cared about the space program or not. All they know is, you know, space and going to the moon is for over 40 years. But that piece of our history is so exciting that it's got life. It's got life. There's no half-life to it. It's just Space today is exciting to a 10- or 12-year-old, because I've talked to them, as it was to Grandma and Grandpa 40 years ago. That's what we're working with. And the answer to your question is, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. It's incredible that people like it so much. And the little things they like are the fact that I was willing to tell them who I was. Well, that, I, I think was willing that, to that... bring my friends in and let them tell you who I was. Well, that's what I was going to say, that it's the strength of it. Is, because, I mean, the story of going to the moon has been told again and again and again. The strength of this film is it's, a, it's personal. And, very, and, and, and you're very open. I, when we went in, I gave it to Mark Stewart and Mark Craig and Gareth Dobbs. I gave them a list. I said, I want it to be personal. I don't want it to be, you know, all the mechanics that go in. I mean, we know that. 
and I gave them a list, and I think it was like some 40 people. Now, we never got to all of them. They included my kids and my grandkids, my friends and my sister, and anybody who I could think of that had anything to do with me from the time I was 8 or 10 years old to the time I ended the government. I said, that's the story you want. You don't want my story. That's the story. They got to probably, I don't know, a third or half of them, and that's where the story came from. And what I like about it, nothing was scripted. Nobody said, Gene, here's what we're going to talk about today. They just, we went somewhere, wherever it was, Arlington, the cemetery. We went to the aircraft carrier Midway in San Diego. We went to all these places. And all, all I did, I like to think of it, that they just hung a microphone on me and said, think out loud. And in retrospect, that's what I did. I'm standing there and I'm saying, you know, why is Roger Chaffee six feet underground and I'm here? That I was thinking that, but I was saying that at the same time. And so that plus their incredible talent in putting music and scenery and a video together, you know, you go from a very quiet time when they're talking about, and I remember Gene Kranz was saying, you know, it's a risky business. We can't get there without taking a risk. And then all of a sudden, boom, the rockets go off, showing that we, you know, the phoenix is is, is, is recovering. We're, we're back in business. And and went at the cemetery for Roger Chaffee's funeral, and I kept thinking, and I did. It, and it, it, it came out in the audio. Are we burying our friends? Or are we burying the entire Apollo program? And, and I, I will swear to God, that's exactly what's, what went through my mind at that point in time. And I didn't have an answer. I guess that's what people like about the movie. And I think, I mean, it, it's all emotion. So there's there's that when you were talking about Apollo 1. But also you were taken to the launch pad of Apollo. And there you could seem, you seem angry seeing these these decaying Apollo launch Nostalgia. pads. you, there's only one place where human beings have left this planet to call another planet, if you allow me to call a moon my home. And it was my home. Only one place on the entire planet that we left to go somewhere else. And we've just let that place disappear. And it, and, and, and I said, I wish I hadn't come this way. I don't want to see it this way. I want to see it vibrant. I want to see it. I want to see that big booster steaming all that oxygen. I want, I'm going to be ready to go again. huh? And, and to see the way it was just, it was just being torn down. There was nothing there. That hurt, quite frankly. And here we are, four decades later, we've gone to the moon, and we can't even get our own spacecraft in space to go to our own space station. What do you think Jeff K would think about that? If you think back to Apollo 17, though, <clears throat> you ended on such a high. I mean, that whole mission, you look, listen back to the, any of the tapes of it. You, you land, it's exuberant when you're, you're landing. You got so much work done, science done, you drove across the moon, and then you had those, those final words, the final footstep. I mean, you must be proud of not just the achievement of Apollo but that mission in particular oh yeah I am I uh, I needed 
if you go back far enough, and and I've said it, uh, I was an underdog. I'm the only guy that did go to just pilot school. I needed that flight to prove that I was good enough. It was very important to me, and uh, and I was willing to to fight for it. I was willing to to literally turn down an opportunity to walk on the moon for maybe a chance to command Apollo 17. It was that important to me. I don't know how, why me, how I came out of winter, but I did both. I walked on the moon, I commanded 17. But yeah, we were, I, I was on a high the whole time. You know, and people say, how's it feel to be the end? How's it feel to be the tail of the dog? Last one on the fence, and I got on my box. It said, we're not the end, we're just the beginning. Now, the beginning hadn't yet begun yet, unfortunately, from my point of view. But we're just, you know, we're not only going to go back to the moon, we're going to go to Mars. And indeed we are. At what point in time, I don't know. But, yeah, we're on a, how can you not be on a high when you've got control and, and you're in control of your own destiny? And that's where I felt. When I stepped on the moon, it wasn't the steps that counted. It was a fact that I proved to myself that I was good enough to get that far. People said, do you ever worry about getting off? No, I didn't worry about getting off. As long as I was there, I was going to get back off the moon when the time came. I'm going to do make the best of what I got. A rover to drive. I'm going to be here three days. You know, what else in your life, what other mountain can you climb that's going to give you a high like that? And then you get home successfully, you know, and the whole world is we And we traveled around the world afterwards. I don't care what color, what size, what shape, what religion. People were throwing their babies at you like you were something that just came right out of heaven. And it's almost embarrassing, quite frankly. And it's almost embarrassing. I, yes, I went to the moon. I'm in the history books. I, I don't look over my shoulder. I did it yesterday. I want to know what I'm going to do tomorrow. So I can sit here and talk to you and say, yeah, I lived on the moon. It's almost embarrassing for me to say that. It's egotistic for me to say that to you. What do you mean you lived on the moon? Give me a break. Just in terms of that mission, then, and you're living on the moon, everything clicked, didn't it? I mean, just, I'm obviously, I wasn't there. I'm just listening to the tapes. But unlike other missions where things maybe didn't quite go, everything seemed to just be like clockwork. Everything seemed to work pretty well. But you know it should have. Because every flight we had built upon the previous flight, built upon the successes and built upon the failures. And when we got to Pilot 17, I, I think we were really prepared. From a scientific point of view, I took a scientist. He wasn't, a, wasn't an aviator, but he was sort of a micro-scientist. He looked at the small picture. I'm an engineer. I'm, a, I'm an aviator. I looked at the big picture, macro-scientist. The geologists loved us because Jack Schmidt would see the little things. And I'd back up and look at the mountains and say, wow, where'd they come from? How did this get here? And, and, and the scientists were able to put the pictures, our comments, and everything else we brought back together and got a much broader and bigger picture from the macro to the micro. And that made me feel good. They said, this is the best science experience, uh, a, a flight we've ever had. And that was part of the reason we went. You know, you want to do a good job. You want to be proud of what you did. And and to come back with nothing would have been somewhat of a... Just going to the moon and picking up a rock was not going to be good enough. We had 
to accomplish and come back with some answers to questions we didn't even know to smart enough to ask. And what can people do that robots can't? I mean, this is the whole argument. What could you do that you couldn't do with robotic craft? Think. Intelligence. Change your mind. If, you know, I don't care. You can make a robot, but you can never put a brain in it. The robot is only as smart as we make it before we send it. This brain right here is the most complex computer in the world. It can change its mind. It can look here. When have we had a ticker tape parade for a robot? Okay? It's the human, it's the human courage. It's the human culture. It's human ability to, to think. It's the human ability to understand what discovery is. It's the human... We are the most... We're, we're, we're curious... The brain is curious. You can't make a robot curious. Oh, maybe you can. I don't know. And it's the curiosity is the essence of human existence. What's on the other side of that hill? What's across the river? Now, a robot may not care and it may not ask the question, but you do. And then what you do with it is, you know, there's just... I, I, people ask that question all the time. If the, the human brain is beyond conception. I, I, it's, it's beyond my capability even think what, what's up there. How much thought went into your, your, final, your final words and your final statement? Because they, they've got, they're going to last. People are going to remember those. Well, and I, I'm, I'm more of an ad-lib guy. I, 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 didn't, I, I was asked over and over and over again by the press, what are you going to say? When the last man in my way, hell, I don't know what I'm going to say. And I didn't know until the night before I left. I scribbled a couple words down on a checklist and I sort of picked up when Neil left off. We now leave as we once came. And God willing, we shall return. And the thing about going up the ladder, as I remember, it was written somewhere, Godspeed, the crew of Apollo 17. I just put those words, I I tend to put the words together as they come to me. I, honest to God, did not know what I was going to say until we left. And I really didn't, you know. And after we came home and I listened to him, well, okay. And when you splashed down, did you think that was going to be the the end? Well, I mean, for 40 40 years, more than 40 years, in terms of the moon program, or was there some optimism at the time that this would continue? No, we knew Apollo 17 was the last flight. So we had 20 flights and... and, and, uh, Nineteen and twenty got canceled fairly early. Then later on, eighteen got canceled. And when eighteen, eighteen was out there for a while because we did have a geologist, and uh, they wanted to make room to get him to fly. And then, you know, someone decided that uh, maybe we had enough, or maybe it was politics, maybe it was money, maybe it was you know what are we going to do with all the scientific information we already know? And cancel eighteen, and that sort of pushed. Jack Schmidt, the science part of the mission, to 17. And that's what made the who's going to fly the mission a little bit of a, a, a controversy. But, yeah, we knew that when we splashed down, Apollo was over. And uh, that we truly were the tail of the dog. And how do you feel about that 
now? I mean, is there some optimism? You've got the head of the European Space Agency talking about this idea of a moon village. Okay, it's not funded, but he's talking about that. You've got Elon Musk, for example, talking about going to Mars. NASA's building yeah, the space launch talk. system. It, yeah, talk, well, that's what... Talk, talk is cheap. Elon Musk has talks a lot. And he's done pretty well, and I'll give him all the credit in the world. But we're not, you know, talk is cheap. We, we, we don't, it's not that easy, particularly when you put a human being on a spacecraft. Everything changes. You could, you could put dirty laundry on a clean laundry on a spacecraft to set it up to the, to the space station. But when you put a man or a woman on that thing, things become a little different. And there's a lot that part of uh, uh, the private sector has to learn about the risk you're going to have to take to get the job done. Now, I'm all for them. I want to see success from every corner of the earth we can find it. But, uh, you know, where are we today? Apollo 17 was the last. We're, we're, to me, we're in a very disappointing place that I never thought we'd find ourselves. We had the largest booster in the world, the most capable machine and went to the moon, went to another planet. I'm telling you, 43 years ago, I drove a car on the moon. How crazy is that? I mean, if I remember when Von Braun told me one day when I first got in the program, he said, you know, you don't worry about how getting there. I get you there. Someday you drive a car on the moon. That probably was in the early 60s. Yes, sir, Dr. Von Braun. <laughs> you know, this guy's really a visionary. I drove a car on the moon 43 years ago. And basically, we've got Space Station, an unbelievable engineering feat. Only possible because we built what I think was the finest flying machine in the world, and that was Shuttle. But Shuttle didn't go anywhere. It went 200 miles away, but it didn't go anywhere. We'd been to the moon, and Shuttle can't, can't get us anywhere, but it was a great flying machine. A lot of us built the Space Station. Now we've got a Space Station 250 miles above the Earth, and it's wonderful. It's a nice scientific community up there. But I don't know what it's I don't know what it's telling me, quite frankly. I don't know whether we found a cure for disease. I don't know. It, it's up there. We're doing things that are practical, they're important, but we haven't yet hit the jackpot. And so for forty three years we've been sitting there waiting for something to happen. The jackpot is going back to the moon. The jackpot is going on to Mars. What's on Mars? Where's their water? Where's their life? Can we live there? The questions that have yet to be answered. The landing of Apollo 17, we opened a whole new era in spaceflight that's taking us nowhere. That's me talking. That's my opinion. Station is wonderful, but it's taking us nowhere. I want to go somewhere. Once you've been in the moon, staying home is not good enough. Gemini 9, Apollo 10, Apollo 17, astronaut, the late, great Gene Cernan. I enjoyed that. And I I must admit, I preferred hearing it in full than hearing, obviously, having heard shorter, much shorter extracts. I think it's only when you get it all together. Yeah, you get into it more and you get more of a feeling for him as well in that longer presence. And I love his turn of phrase. I like it when he says, I was bent like a pretzel. <laughs> you know, That's just... brilliant. So some of those, you know, you might have heard those if you listened uh, to our 
10-part, award-winning 10-part series uh, oh, yes. for, <laughs> for, for Audible, The Space Race. Um, so we had some of those extracts from, from that in, uh, in there. But that is the first time. Yeah, that and, and also the pace of that full. series was much quicker. You wouldn't, oh, yeah, you wouldn't the, play the, the, 40 the, yeah. minutes. You no, would we have had like 15-second clips. Yeah, 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 absolutely, around actuality, yeah. I think around you really get archive. A, a good view of how the importance of Gemini in that interview and and the sort of respect for what had gone before the difficulties you know the spacewalk from hell i think I that's that. yeah i mean i feel that's the most revealing part i think that the, the most revealing two parts of that that the most revealing because he had these you could tell when he'd gone into an answer that he'd given yes, before which you always can but can't you? i think there were other bits after that because i pushed yeah um, on some of those answers, we got a lot more about Gemini because I think the Gemini's are the most undervalued missions, um, and I think actually isn't um, Andy Saunders' um, Apollo book Apollo amazing, remastered? Yeah, images. Um, I think he's doing Mercury and Gemini. Yes, yes, I saw an I just think Gemini just ex- they're just extraordinary. I'm so missions. glad he's doing really well, and and I know loved. He was on a recent podcast, and he yeah, he was absolutely brilliant. So yeah, so. Uh, Gemini 9, I think, was it was pretty revealing, the things he was saying. And the Apollo 10, that was really interesting because I didn't even ask that question. But that was when the Apollo 10, you probably got it from the interview, where it spun out of control around the moon because there was a mix-up over... Oh, that's when he was the, talking the about standing on the yeah. little handlebar and... No, that was, uh, no, oh, no, that that was, was Gemini. Gemini. Sorry, I got no, confused. Apollo 10, <laughs> he was talking about spinning the, Earth's, uh, the moon's horizon going round oh, and round right, outside yeah. his window um, and almost crashing into the moon. And that was, that was a human error. That was, mm. And he also swore, if you listen, go back to the actuality, it, it's quite blue, as they say. <laughs> um, and that was all on Vox, so it was all heard. Mm back on earth but i mean they almost died so it's not surprising but yeah, the, that, that the, was, it was, was interesting handle, you went into that oh it was the handlebar the armored pants yes bit. the are oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you see words like that <laughs> bent like a pretzel and armored pants uh, unfortunately the way my brain works is that, that you know that's they're, my, you they're my the, take-home so 40 minute interview they yeah, were yeah. they were sue's take-home messages. and the other thing was um as you say he sounds he sounded really pissed off at the uh that it felt like at the time, as you as you explained at the beginning of the interview, that it was all over. You know, why was this legacy um, of of going to the moon and this launch pad? Why we weren't going back? And I thought, considering um, how many years ago was this recorded? Uh, twenty sixteen, summer twenty sixteen. So six years ago, he actually <laughs> dismisses Elon with Elon talks a lot, and I just think, considering the recent acquisition of Twitter, how accurate is would, would that explanation? It's well, just like uh, I, I, well, I, Elon tweets a lot. Uh, yeah, I suppose Elon the, talks the a lot. tragedy of this yeah. is, I mean, it, you know, it, it's con- it's conceivable and. You know, hopefully, some of the Apollo astronauts will still be alive when the Look next people back. walk on yes. the moon. But Gene Cernan didn't even see Artemis come, yes. you know, start yeah. to come to fruition. He didn't see the dragonfly. Um, so, you know, it, there's a sort of tragedy in that, I think. It's quite sad I, that I he didn't can't, see I that. I refuse to think of his life in any way as tragic. I think maybe it's just. Unfortunate, but no, I think angry. what a lie. No, I know angry. he was, but yeah. I just think, yeah, the feistiness of his character totally comes out yeah. in that. Yeah. And you can see how what a determined 
And again, it's that whole thing we often discuss this, don't we, is that those sort of men and and some members of the Mercury 13 who, apart from Wally, didn't get into space, how actually some of those women probably, um, and men would maybe into today's <laughs> high qualifications in terms of and personalities that they want, wouldn't have got into, into space. And I suspect, despite his amazing engineering equivalent, I think maybe that sort of attitude and strength of character might have because he could obviously rub people up the wrong way. And that's what you don't want now. For those longer missions, when you're with astronauts for a long time, you you need everyone. I was going to use that B word again, bland. But you, you need everyone to get on with everybody else and not rub people up the wrong way. And that is a skill in itself, one that you have actually, and <laughs> so I don't. Think, yeah. Yes, so yeah. maybe I'd make a better astronaut than you. Oh, you probably yeah. would actually. Well, what struck you about him the most? I think by the time of this interview, he was much more grounded, if that's the right word to use. He thought about his legacy quite a lot. Well, you he would. He thought you? about what he'd done, um, and I mean, you know, he's he's really personable. You know, I've interviewed quite a few of the Apollo astronauts. Some are more personable, I have to say, than others. And Gene Cernan, if you don't mess around, if you get your, you know, half-decent questions, um, you know, how revealing that interview was, I think. Yeah, no. And um, also, as is always the case, I think I just listen to to people like that who are... Oh, God, I think it's about time I name-drop Rich, I think... (laughs) When I interviewed Jim Lovell, I know you well, were supposed yes. to. Well, I, I, I had to stand what, in. You mean the interview that I set yeah, up? That you yeah, you set up and I had to do. It was like Jim Lovell in that you appreciate that the in the twilight years, that, you know, 80 years or so has gone by. And what I found astonishing about Gene Cernan and also Lovell is how smart and clued up and intelligent and just their brains are just totally in good working order. I have to say, and I'm very envious. Well, he was a lot sharper at seven o'clock in the morning than, you were. than I was. Yeah. Did you get a picture of him in his dressing gown? No, like, I oh, didn't. No, shame. I think it was a no pictures yeah. situation. <laughs> shame, shame. <laughs> I think it was. Well, um, hopefully our um, our listeners enjoyed that extended um, interview heard in its entirety for the first time. And it looks like you're flicking through. Well, I wanted to just plug. I just it wanted to like plug, plug this. Coming yeah. up, coming so, up. Plug um, alert. I've used some parts of this interview, a good deal of it actually, in our Year in Space book from the Supermassive podcast. Beautiful book, and there's some beautiful. It's just love. It's it's laid out so beautifully. And the this Apollo is with the Royal Astronomical yeah. uh, Society. So um, it's called the Year in Space. Great Christmas book. I know we keep plugging Brilliant. it, but yeah. it is it's, really good. It's lovely. We're really proud of it. It's got a lot of the pictures and a lot of the um, what we refer to in the text. Some stunning pictures of Gene Cernan on the moon. Really beautifully laid out. So if you want to read sections of that that interview. And just see some of the some of the pictures. Tons more. Yeah, and tons more. Of course, obviously the Artemis program. Yeah, and lots on the Artemis. All the rest of it. The year in space from Supermassive Podcast. You can get in touch with us on all the usual channels apart from instagram because we haven't logged in for ages and can't do you know what I'm not, we might it. even be logged out <laughs> yeah. I, I know it's shocking yeah. but you know life is too short sometimes yes. i'm you know 
Yeah. I mean, we, we make a podcast. You get to listen to this for nothing. So, you know, I'm not going to give blood. Uh, no. <laughs> <Sort of laughs> and on that note, uh, we will be back with a regular podcast at the end of the month. Mm, no or, blood spilled. No and, blood spilled. Uh, yeah. And it's a good one, as always. It's a very good one, mm. as always. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See you then.